Are we good with um, any of the quotes by chance? No? Okay. All right, so we're going to go a little old school. We had a little technical difficulty, so I'm going to say something that I have not said to you guys in years, but I'm so happy to say it. If you have your Bibles, pull it out, and we have the main passage, but I also, we're also going to take a cross-reference to John chapter 3 and John 17, so just be ready on your phones to cross-reference with that, okay? I love that. Pull out your Bibles. Oh, it's so good to say that again. Pull out your Bibles or, or whatever. Uh, let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would be with us. Father, our hearts continue to grieve for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, as well as in Russia and in all of Eastern Europe. Father, we pray for the churches there. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we pray for a persevering spirit. We pray uh, for President Zelensky as he does the work um, that he is called to do at this moment. We pray for all the leaders involved, and we pray for the way of truth and righteousness to prevail. And Father, as we entrust uh, these saints and these leaders into your providential care, we pray now that you would enable us by your spirit to be focused on what we are about to do right now, this holy moment where we take pause and take Sabbath and hear the words that you speak. Father, it is only through your words that we find hope, that we find life, we find true and lasting peace. And so, Father, we ask that you would allow us to hear all that you want us to hear and that we, your sheep, would respond accordingly. Father, we ask that you would encourage us, empower us, and equip us for the work that you've called us to do as we live in this world as your representatives. Father, would you now empower us and bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people together said, amen and amen. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Depending on who you ask you'll get a wide variety of answers to it. Some would respond by saying, oh, Jesus, he's the greatest influencer of Western culture today. Yes, no other individual has had the kind of impact and influence that Jesus Christ had on Western society. He is the greatest influencer, influencer of all. And still others would respond by saying, Jesus, oh yeah, he was that apocalyptic preacher who went around all of Judea and Galilee and inspired people to potentially overthrow the Roman government. And still others would say, Jesus, oh yeah, he's the figment of some imagination of the early founders of Christianity. Yeah, there's actually a growing group of people who would say that Jesus never existed, that he was simply a myth. You see, depending on who you ask, you'll get a wide variety of answers to the question of who is or was Jesus Christ. And one recent answer I stumbled upon was this, Jesus, Jesus was a Karen. Jesus was a Karen. Do you guys know what a Karen is? It's a recurring pejorative term given to usually white women who are very privileged, who feel entitled to tell people what to do and make demands based on their own personal expectation and preferences. Now, of course, people who say this are not saying that Jesus literally was a privileged white woman, but what they are saying is that Jesus is like a Karen who went around telling people what to do, making demands of them as if the whole universe centered around him. And that kind of persona of Jesus is highly offensive to many people today. And of course, that offense gets even more magnified by the fact that we are confronted by a wide variety of faiths and religion and faith figures, religious leaders who make similar kinds of demands to where the modern person would say, why should I listen to Jesus? Why would I even consider to what he has to say? Why would I even give him credence 
to the kinds of things that he claims about himself and the implication it should have on me. Such is the thinking of those who would see Jesus as a pre-form of Karen's today. And of course, this is nothing new, because as Jesus walked on this earth, he frequently had to deal with this kind of dubious posturing directed against him, sometimes even directly in his face. Consider what it says in verse 13 of our passage. So the Pharisee said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Can you pick up on the same skepticism? Can you pick up the same dubious posturing against him? You see, people back then, as people today, tend to look at Jesus as someone of no significance to where they would not agree to the idea that he is deserving of the kind of following that he claims he should have. And the question that we should ask ourselves today is, what would Jesus say about that? How would Jesus react to that kind of skepticism, that kind of dubiousness directed against him? Well, that's what we hope to answer in today's sermon as we're continuing our sermon series entitled The I Am Sayings of Jesus. And the whole point of this series is to look at the seven famous statements recorded in the Gospel of John that Jesus said that all begin with the phrase, I am. And today we take a look at the second version of this where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And as we parse out what Jesus means by that statement, we are going to discover that all the criticisms, all the complaints of people who would say Jesus is just a Karen is so unfounded. Because as we understand what Jesus means by being the light of the world, we're going to properly understand who Jesus actually is. And it's broken down into three different ways. And here they are. First, Jesus is the source of stability. Number two, Jesus is the source of safety. And finally, Jesus is the source of salvation. Who is Jesus? He is the source of stability, the source of safety, and the source of salvation. So let's begin now with the first point. Jesus is the source of stability. Read again verse 12 of our passage where it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever fo follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, so here Jesus begins with a bold response against the accusation that he is simply a Karen. In a sense, Jesus is saying to his naysayers, look guys, I ain't no Karen, I am the light of the world. But of course we wonder, what in the world does that even mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world? Well, we get a big hint with what he says in his very next breath. Listen to what he says. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Let me ask you, have you ever walked in complete darkness before? Have you ever attempted to do that? As I ask that question, I know what you're immediately thinking of in your past experience. You're probably thinking of that moment when the power went out on a dark, stormy night and you're walking around in your home and in your apartment. And yes, in that moment, you were totally fine. You could easily make your way and navigate your around in that darkness because it's your home. It's your place, and you can pretty accurately assess where things are to where you can pretty much assess appropriately where things are so you don't stumble, you don't falter, you don't fall. So you're fine to walk in the darkness in that setting, but what if it's in a place that you've never been before? What if you're in the complete darkness in a place that you've never, ever been? Have you ever attempted to walk in that kind of a setting? I have, yeah. <coughs> back uh, in my high school years, the summer before my um, senior year in high school, a group of friends and I decided to go camping, and we ended up going to a place that one of my friends frequently camped with his family. And on the first night, in the middle of it, I ate something really, really bad because I woke up to a very painful abdomen. I had to go to the bathroom, 
Okay, so I went off not too far from the campgrounds in a secluded area in the woods, and, you know, I did my business. And as I proceeded to go back, my flashlight died. Yeah, it just died. You know, being the novice camper that I was, and quite honestly still am, it didn't even dawn on me that I needed to check the batteries of my flashlight before going on the trip, and so now I'm suffering the consequences. My flashlight literally went dead, and I couldn't call out to my friends because in the middle of the night, they're all sleeping, which meant there was no fire left to guide me back to the site, and in that moment, I was utterly terrified, right? As I proceeded to walk back, I heard sounds that I never noticed before. I got scratched up by branches and twigs. I hit my knee really hard on something that I knew was a tree or, or some sort, and I almost sprained my ankle not once or twice, but three times because of rocks that I could not see. And you know how long it took me to get back to camp? It took me over 30 minutes. I knew because I had one of those Timex watches, and I tried to see if I could do that, and it didn't work, right? Which is so weird. It only took me two minutes to get where I was from camp, but it took me 30 minutes to get back. Walking in the complete darkness in a place that you've never been is the most terrifying experience as a human being could ever have because in that moment, you're so helpless, you're so clueless, you're so lost, okay? So with that imagery in set, let's read one more time verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Now you understand, don't you, what he is saying. Jesus is saying that if you make it your main priority in life to follow him, he promises, he assures us that you will never be lost, you will never be helpless, you will never be clueless as you walk in this dark world. That's what he is saying when he says, I am the light of the world. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I am the light, you know, within your heart. He doesn't say, I'm the light of your family. He doesn't say, I'm the light of your church. He doesn't even say, I'm the light of the city you live in. No, he says, I am the light of the whole world world, which means if you learn from him, if you obey him, if you trust him, you will not suffer the terrifying experiences of stumbling in a dark world because he will give you the kind of guidance that you need so that you can safely navigate in the darkened world we live in, just like you can easily navigate in your apartment, in your home, when the power goes out on a dark and stormy night. Consider what the late London preacher Charles Spurgeon once said regarding this. He said this, quote, He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for the expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of a man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity, end quote. What's Spurgeon saying? He's saying Jesus gives you a comprehensive understanding of reality so that you don't get lost in all the confusion, all the chaos of the dark world we live in. In other words, G Spurgeon says, Jesus gives us a comprehensive worldview. Comprehensive worldview. Now, for those of you who've been part of our church, that word worldview should ring some bells because we talk about it all the time. But just in case this is your first Sunday with us, consider this definition of a worldview from the Impact 360 Institute. It says this, quote, a worldview is a set of lenses through which you see the world around you. It is a web of habit-forming beliefs that make, help you make sense of all your experiences. Through your worldview, you interpret life in a particular way. It affects how you think, how you feel, and how you live from day to day, end quotes. You know, as you can see, I wear glasses. And if you get really close, <coughs> you'll notice they're very, very thick. 
which means I'm practically blind. In fact, that's what uh, a recent trip to the eye doctor told me. The eye doctor told me, you're legally blind, man. You know, duh. <laughs> but that's what he told me, which means when I don't have these lenses on in front of me, it's as if I'm practically walking in the pitch blackness. And as a result, I will falter. I will stumble. I am very unstable in that situation. But the moment I have these lenses on my face, now I can easily make my way and I am stabilized. I am secure, even in places that I've never been because I can see where I'm going. Jesus is saying that when he calls himself the light of the world. He says that if you trust and depend on him the way I trust and depend on my glasses, you will ensure be safe. You will be stabilized. You will be able to make your way in a very crazy, chaotic, confusing world. That is what he means when he calls himself the light of the world. You see? Now, for those of you here investigating Christianity, that might sound intriguing to you, but not very convincing. And the reason why is because you find yourself very much in the same position as the Pharisees in our passage. Let me explain why. <coughs> It might come as a shocker to you that during the time when Jesus was alive and even before and after Jesus was here, a lot of people claimed to be the Messiah. Yeah, a lot of people came around saying, hey, I'm the true Messiah. I'm the chosen one of God. I'm the savior of God's people. A lot of people during this time claimed to be the Messiah, the son, right? And guess which group of religious scholars were responsible to verify, to scrutinize, and to discredit people who would make such claims. That's right. It was the Pharisees because they were the Jewish experts of the law. And so they made it their main mission and really it made up a lot of their time of trying to scrutinize and discredit a lot of false teachers, false promise, prophets, and false messiahs. And as they're doing this falsification of so many false teachers, here comes Jesus on the scene and he's saying, hey guys, guess what? I'm the real messiah. I'm the genuine article. You can easily understand why they're a little skeptical, why they are dubious, why they're not very trusting of Jesus. And because that was their position, you resonate with that. Because for some of you, you live in a world that you're constantly bombarded with so many other faiths, so many other religions, so many other religious figures who make similar claims as Jesus. And you wonder, is there a way in which maybe Jesus could show some more credibility than these other folks? Is there a way in which maybe my skepticism can be taken out of me? I think there is. And to explain, we go to my next point. Jesus is the source of safety. Let's pick it up where we left off. Starting in verse 13, we read, So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Okay, so as I said a moment ago, the Pharisees, like the modern skeptic, are having a hard time believing that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is the Messiah, that he is the light of the world. And why do they have a hard time believing him? Listen again, verse 13, you are bearing witness to yourself. In other words, these Pharisees are saying to Jesus, dude, Jesus, you actually expect us to believe that you're the light of the world simply because you say so? No, it's not because of that. We can't believe you based on your word. But then listen to how Jesus responds in verse 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. That's hilarious. Because what basically Jesus is saying is, uh, guys, 
it's precisely because I say I am the light of the world that indeed I am the light of the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, guys, whatever I say is so, is so, right? It's because I said it, it is. And that just sounds ridiculous. For those of you here investigating Christianity, you're like, that's the most ridiculous logic I've ever said, I've ever heard. Jesus, you actually expect us to believe the words coming out of your mouth just by your word, just because you say so? What makes you so special? What, do the same rules that apply to everyone else simply don't apply to you like you're God or something? Oh, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Maybe that is his point. Maybe what he's saying in verse 14 is actually a claim of divinity. Maybe he is saying, guess what? I am the one and only true God. I think that's exactly what he's saying, and so did the late, great R.C. Sproul. Listen to what he said here. This is an incredible statement. Jesus is basically saying, when God speaks, you don't need human corroboration. Now, I know, for those of you here who are on the fence when it comes to Christianity, if you're not sure whether you believe or you know you don't believe, this is not a persuasive argument. It's not persuasive to, to simply believe that Jesus is God simply because he says so. How could you ever be convinced simply on those terms? But yet I would respond, I guess it depends. I guess it depends on the kind of God you would feel compelled to instinctively worship. I think it would depend on the kind of God you feel compelled to instinctively worship. Here's a question that I think you should consider if that is you today. What kind of God does Jesus present himself to be? What kind of God does he reveal himself to be to the people around him? Take a listen to what he says in verse 15 and 16. You judge <coughs> according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now, this is a very weird, confusing statement. Because Jesus starts off saying he doesn't judge anyone. But then in his very next breath, he says, I do judge, and I judge according to the truth. What's going on, Jesus? What are you doing? I think he's trying to explain another aspect of what it means for him to be the light of the world. Let me explain. No, light, by its very nature, reveals things that are hidden, right? It reveals things. <coughs> and one of the things that people naturally do is that they want to avoid darkness. People are naturally afraid of darkness. If you ever go to a place that you've never been in, it's pitch black, what's your immediate instinct to do? Turn on the flashlight find a light switch, right? Because there is this intrinsic fear of the dark. And yet the Bible says something very odd. The Bible says the same people who are afraid of darkness are also simultaneously afraid of light. Yeah. The Bible says people who are afraid of the dark are also at the same time afraid of light. Now, how do you make sense of that? Now let's turn to John chapter 3 for those of you who were able to look. And listen to what it says starting in verse 18 of John 3. He says, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. Now, there's so much here that we can say, but there's just two things that I want to draw your attention to. Number one, what is the reason, according to John 3, why people are afraid of the light? It's because they have darkness in them. Darkness in the form of perverted desires. Darkness in the form of wicked thoughts. Darkness in the form of really disturbing goals and ambitions. See, light, again, reveals things that are hidden. You know, if you ever look under your couch, you usually can't see anything, right? But the moment you shine the light under it, 
Now all that was hidden under the dark underbelly of the couch is disgustingly revealed, right? Those dirty socks, those half-eaten cookies with mold all over it, those creepy crawlers <laughs> moving in about. And Jesus is saying that's who he is. He says, I am the exposing light. I expose things about you that are disgusting, that are disturbing, that are demented and depraved. He is the exposing light. And this is why people are afraid of the light, because they don't want the darkness within them to be exposed. But then consider the second thing Jesus says in John 3. He says, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Jesus is saying that even though he's the exposing light, he's not the condemning light. Even though he exposes things, he doesn't condemn for those things. This is what he means in verse 15 of our passage. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. See, Jesus is essentially telling us this. He's saying, guys, I'm God, and the kind of God that I am is this. Even though I have the power to expose things about you in such a way that you'll be hurt and humiliated, canceled and condemned, ruined and rejected, I will not do that to you. I will not use my exposing light to hurt, humiliate, cancel, condemn, ruin, or reject you. Right? Why? Because that's how the world judges. They judge according to the flesh. I don't judge that way. I don't judge according to the flesh at all. The world that you and I live in is so vicious in its judgment. Amen? It judges us to cancel, to condemn, to hurt, humiliate. And when you understand that Jesus says, that's not me, that's not how I use my light, then you understand the nature of what it means for him to be the light of the world. Jesus is saying, look, I am not the light of the flash of a camera of a paparazzi reporter who's eager just to display all of your messed up flaws for the whole world to see. That's not me. No, my light is like that of a careful surgeon who is focused on all that is twisted and broken and wounded in you so I can straighten, I can heal, I can fix those things and cover over those things so that you would be protected. That is what Jesus means when he says he is the light. And here's the thing, folks. You will never find that same kind of God described in any other faith, whether you're talking about any current faith today or any ancient faith that died centuries ago. Go ahead, do your due diligence and do your research. Read all the sacred texts. You know, analyze all the you know, scholarly textbooks of comparative religion. You will not find a God characterized the way Jesus characterized himself as God. Do you know why? Because the human mind, with all of its creativity and ingenuity, cannot even come up with the idea of a God who exposes us and yet is safe for us at the same time. Let me say that again. The human mind, in spite of all of its creativity and ingenuity, cannot even fathom the idea of a God who exposes us and is safe for us at the same time, but you find it only in the Christian faith. You only find it in Jesus' portrayal of himself as God. This is what sets him apart from any other religious figure. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, one question that naturally arises from such an idea is how is this possible? How is God, Jesus, able to be this way when one of the standard job descriptions of God is to punish the wicked and to cast away those who walk in darkness into the outer darkness? How can God, the one and only true God, be exposing us and yet safe for us at the same time? Well, that leads me to my final point. Jesus is the source of salvation. Read again with me verses 18 and 19. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? 
Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So here in these verses, Jesus starts bringing up the topic of his father. And it's at that moment, the Pharisees think that they got him. And they want to use this as an opportunity to shame and therefore shut up Jesus. How so? Well, here's something you need to understand. By the time that Jesus is having this teaching moment, he's already pretty popular, right? His reputation has now proceeded, and he is famous so much so that people have already done some digging in terms of who this Jesus is, where he comes from, who his parents were. And one potential source of discrediting embarrassment for Jesus was his father, his earthly father. Do you guys know who it was? A man named Joseph. Joseph, during his day and age, was not esteemed. He was not respected. And therefore, anyone associated with Joseph would have been seen as an embarrassment and definitely not someone to listen to or to follow. And that's what the Pharisees were trying to do indirectly. They were trying to shut Jesus down by making everyone be reminded of who his embarrassing earthly father is. But Jesus responds to the Pharisees' attempt to discredit him and to embarrass him by clarifying the father that he is referring to. And it's a father who has loved him way before Joseph ever was his earthly adopted father. And who is this person? It's his heavenly father. It's God the Father. Now, by just saying that, I just referenced a very important but confusing Christian doctrine. And that is the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, for those of you who are unfamiliar, we Christians have a unique understanding of who we think God is. Yeah, because we Christians believe there's only one God, but this one God is made up of three different persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that we believe in three different deities. No, we believe there's one God, one deity, but this one deity has three different persons within him. Not three different personalities like an individual who has mental illness. We're talking about one being made up of three different persons. Now, again, for those of you who are investigating the Christian faith, I know this does not sound like it makes any sense at all. But if you consider how Jesus is going to bring some implications out of this very confusing doctrine, I think it has the potential of compelling you to worship the triune God. Let's see if we can do that. Read again verse 18 where Jesus says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witnesses about me. Here Jesus, again, is saying that the Father he's referring to is God because just like him, whatever he says, whatever he witnesses is so, just like Jesus because he's God, right? But then notice another thing that Jesus says about his Father beyond just witnessing to the Son. What else does the Father do? He sends the Son, right? Listen to what he says. The Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now you might be wondering, what's the significance of Jesus being sent by the Father? Read what it says in 1 John chapter 4. Don't turn, just listen to what it says. Uh, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God the Father sent God the Son into the world, and by sending the Son, that sending is communicating to the world that he loves God you he loves you okay this is the answer to the question that i pose in my last point how is it possible for god to expose us to be safe for us at the same time it's because god the father loves us with a merciful and forgiving love that's why that's how and the way that you experience and encounter this love 
is by turning away from your sins and stop making yourself the center of your own life and instead believe in God the Son coming into the world as a mortal human being, Jesus Christ, living the perfect human life so that when he died on the cross as your Savior's substitute, because of his perfect life and through his sacrificial death, he paid the full penalty, the full punishment when he died on the cross as your Savior. This is the fundamental message of the gospel. But one question that comes out of this gospel message is this. How much does the Father really love me? You know, the Bible says that God really loves me, but how much does he really love me? You ever have one of your kids tell you, Mommy, Daddy, how much do you really love me? I mean, how do you explain that? That's hard to do. You can say, to the moon and back. What does that even mean? Right? Jesus actually answered that very hard-to-answer question in John 17 in the form of a prayer he lifts up to his father. Just follow along as I read it. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message, all the Christians in this room. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them. You are in me. May they experience such perfect unity. And then listen, that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Let me say that one more time. That you love them as much as you love me. Notice the context. Jesus is talking about the father sending Jesus. And he says in that situation, God, the father loves those who believe in the gospel as much as he loves God the Son, okay? God the Father loves all Christians as much, not less, as much as he loves Jesus Christ. Now, if you're one of those little people who like to play games, you might say, well, okay, if God the Father loves me as much as he loves God the Son, then how much does he love God the Son, right? You know, it's by asking that very question that transforms a crazy-sounding doctrine, the Trinity, into the craziest expression of love. Think about it. If the Father loves the Son, and both Father and Son are both God, that means the love they have for one another, number one, it's a perfect love, because God, by definition, is perfect. Number two, it's a permanent love, because God, by definition, is eternal. Number three, it's a persistent love. Because God, by definition, is endless. Number four, it's a powerful love, right? Because God, by definition, is all-powerful. See, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most difficult doctrines to explain, and yet it uniquely explains how and why God loves you as much as he does. You see? And once you grasp that, then you've understood what I believe is the most amazing aspect of Jesus being the light of the world. Jesus being the light of the world stabilizes you as you walk in this dark world. Jesus being the light of the world shows you the kind of God that he is. Jesus being light of the world shows you how you can have the love that all of you are craving, wish existed, but you have not yet experienced with any other person or any other faith. It is only in Christ that you're able to experience the love that we all hope exists and yet have not yet experienced. A powerful, perfect, persistent, and permanent love. If you try to understand how such love can even exist in any other faith, I guarantee you will never find it. And yet inside you know 
you were created to have that kind of love experience in your life. It is only when you understand who God is in Jesus Christ, in the mysterious glory of who he is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you can see that it is only in him that you find the love that you know you need to have in your life. A love you'll never find in a child, a love you'll never find in a spouse, in a friend, or in any other person, but only in Christ alone. Here's my question. Have you seen that love through the light of Christ? This is the thing that you need to understand of what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. Who is he? He is the only person that can provide the love that we all need, a love that we will never find in any other person, any other faith, any other movement. I hope and pray that you will come to see that. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to see the importance of what it means for your son to be the light of the world. So often, God, we think we understand what it means that you love us, but so often we're so unaware. And Father, because of our ignorance, we suffer unnecessarily because we pursue relationships, we pursue circumstances that try to fill a love that can never be found in any other person or in any other spiritual figure. It can only be found in the Son. And Father, I pray that as we hear these words that were preached just a moment ago, that it would settle deep into our hearts and it would produce faith, especially for those among us here who are considering the claims of your Son. Father, I pray that they would seriously consider what it means for your Son to be the light of the world so that we can all come together and be assured that there is the existence of such love and that we are recipients of, recipients of it through the gospel message. I hope and pray that we would truly receive it now. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're now going to give God